Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, where we bring you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is the transfer guru, Dr Duncan Castles. And today we have uh, exclusive news on Chelsea, also Borussia Dortmund, Inter Milan, Tottenham Hotspur, Crystal Palace, Manchester United, as well as, of course, the first feature of the week's podcast, The Villain and Hero. We start, however, at Stamford Bridge. And it is our information that Chelsea will prioritise the signing of a striker in the next window. And by that, I mean in actual number nine, uh, something which they are slightly short of in terms of uh, strikers who've achieved goal tallies, which uh, are uh, expected uh, of a club who can challenge for major trophies. Tammy Abraham has been missing from uh, Thomas Tuchel's squad uh, in recent weeks. Uh, We understand that Tuchel has not been impressed by his training um, and also uh, there is a a lack of trust that he can be that number nine despite the fact his goal return at the beginning of this season was quite impressive. Meanwhile, Olivier Giroud is out of contract and while again, He has been a very astute signing for Chelsea since he arrived from Arsenal. He's not seen, obviously, as the future, given his age and his uh, desire to return to France when his contract ends. So, is it going to be Erling Haaland? Well, again, our information uh, coming from sources uh, who are very senior at the club is that Haaland is just basically too expensive. Remember that Chelsea spent £213 million on players last in the last 18 months. Haaland would cost around €150 million Euros in transfer fee, and then you've got his wages to include, and also a commission uh, for both Mina Raiola, his agent, and his father, Alf Inga Haaland, which could take the entire package over the course of any proposed five-year contract to somewhere between 350 or £400 million. So you're looking at twice the budget that Chelsea paid for five new players in the last 12 months for one single player. And in that case, Tuchel prefers the playing style of Romelu Lukaku, uh, and also Kylian Mbappe, although, of course, Mbappe wants to go to Real Madrid. And there certainly is a possibility, Duncan, that Sergio Aguero may well become the preferred candidate, given he's on a free transfer, and has that ability, as long as he stays fit, to get in behind defences and go one-on-one. Now, of course, people will say, well, why did he spend so much money on Kai Havertz and Timo Werner? especially as Werner's scoring uh, record in Germany in his last season in the Bundesliga was so impressive. Well, we all know that he struggled to sell so far in the Premier League, but Big Tam Tuchel is confident that he can settle both players into the Chelsea lineup. 
but will do so in attacking wide midfield positions. And of course, in the case of Werner, he prefers to play in off the left anyway. Uh, and Mason Mount would play at 10 and Havertz would play at 7. So Duncan, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, given that Chelsea have effectively you know, been one of the leading spenders in world football, but I don't know if you saw this, but they were complimented by Karl-Heinz Rubenegger, or certainly Marina Granovskaya was, uh, just last week, saying that she operated the club in a very efficient way. And they are one of the only Premier League clubs not to have recorded a loss in the last financial year, mainly due to player sales. So, um, of those players, uh, I know you've got some information on Lukaku uh, and Inter Milan. Who do you think is most likely? Let's look at the problem they their leading scorer in the Premier League this season um, is Jorginho on the, the same number of goals as Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham, six goals each. And Jorginho, obviously, a penalty kick taker. Um, you then have Kurt Zuma in five and uh, Timo Werner on the same number. Olivier Giroud, the other number nine, they have at present on four goals. So not difficult to understand why they want to upgrade that yeah, centre forward. You, you can see that just tells the story, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and it, look, I, I think part of that is to do with the way Tuchel plays. So he has delivered very successful results for Chelsea since taking over as manager, but he's done it in a very conservative fashion. They're, they're, they're very much a defence first side, good organisation, stop the other team from scoring, uh, look for your quality to nick a goal and, and hold on to that lead. Um, so that they aren't set up to be a, a free-flowing, high-scoring side, which is ironic given that has been one of Roman Abramovich's persistent demands uh, through his time owning Chelsea and, and has led to the demise of, of several managers in the past. But of course, Tuchel came in to solve what Marina Granovskaya saw as a problem. Um, it put an end to the conflict there being between Granovskaya and Frank Lampard over transfer resources. Um, Tuchel's job has been to get the best out of Werner, to get the best out of Havertz to Granovskaya signings, who she wants to see justified and, and wants to see add to that list of players that she's brought in um, during her period as de facto chief executive of, of Chelsea that have seen people like Rummenigger praise her for her work in the transfer market. Um, Kylian Mbappe, I think we can rule out if they're worried about the Haaland um, cost of transfer, which I think is a justifiable thing to be worried about when Dortmund are signalling that they want 180 million euros. And uh, the asking price on salary is 30 million net, plus those massive commissions that you mentioned. Um, you can see why they would be concerned that that's overpricing uh, a player of Haaland's stature in the game at present. Then Mbappe is going to be in that area as well. There will be per perhaps not as high a commission, but there'll be a substantial commission to um, Mbappe's family who look after his affairs. He will expect top salary in the Premier League, understandably. Um, and the transfer fee should be less if it was done this summer than that 180 million euros, but um, it won't be cheap. And I, I don't see Mbappe leaving this summer for less than 100 million euros. More importantly, the player's preference is for other clubs in England. Um, his first choice would be Liverpool, where they become involved in that 
um, recruitment process in Spain, it's Real Madrid. And I think a lot of people are waiting to see what decision Madrid make uh, and how the other pieces of a, a very busy market and strikers this summer fall into place um, to see whether we, he ends up going there. One thing I've heard recently from the Mbappe camp, which is interesting, is that given the way the market is, um, given movement or non-movement of Messi, given what might happen with Neymar, we reported last week that that Neymar's now has put a hold on contract talks and um, and is is looking at that that Barcelona move again. Mbappe is considering extending at Paris Saint Germain, looking at, at the what I'm told. One of the important things for him is 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 the quality of squad they can build around him. Um, whether they can turn it into a team which doesn't get into the position which they're in at the moment, which is trailing Lille in the French League Championship, um, and whether there is a sensible um, arrangement for him to extend, which is something he he hadn't been thinking ahead of this this COVID period, um, get improved terms at, at PSG, be absolutely the number one in the squad, and wait for that move to England or Spain at another stage. Um, it, it's opened out. I'm not. I'm not saying that's what he's going to do. It's just for the first time in a long time that's entered into the the conversation. I'm hearing from people close to him. Um, Sergio Aguero, I think, would be the uh, tertiary um, or a, you know a backup choice for Chelsea. He is on. On the market, he's looking for a club. He doesn't have a good offer yet from a country where which he wants to move to. Um, I'm told he is very keen to stay at the top level of the European game. So if he doesn't get the kind of club he wants to go to, such as Barcelona, um, then perhaps Chelsea would have a chance of, of taking him. But that's not a cheap deal in terms of the, the wages that would be required to, to uh, sign Aguero. Lukaku is an interesting one, um, and Lukaku's name really shouldn't be on the market given his performances at, at Inter. Um, massive number of goals he scored, 61 and 88 appearances since that time when he was removed his first choice centre forward at Manchester United and sold by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to um, allow the cultural reboot um, to take place. Um, 25 goals and 34 Serie A and Champions League games this season. Inter are going to win the title. He is very happy there. He's happy working under Antonio Conte, who who bet so much on him and demanded that he be the the you know the key signing of his first season at Inter. But as we've we've told you in the podcast, there is a serious question over Inter's finances, not just because they've lost lots of money um, over this COVID period, re- reported over 100 million euro loss in their last set of accounts, but principally because Suning, their owners, have been instructed by the Chinese government to reduce or remove their support for football. They've, they've sold their ownership of um, the Chinese champions, they made Inter available for sale. There have been talks um, with a private equity firm, BC Partners, who are considering buying from Suning. Um, the information that, that, that I have is that they think the club is worth 800 million euros. But you've got a great deal of uncertainty over where Inter will be in the summer market and where they will be next season. Um, and to the extent where Lukaku could 
be placed on the market as a way of, of trying to raise some revenue for them. Now, I'm told he doesn't want to leave, um, that he likes being in Italy. Um, he's very well paid there, so it would make it a very difficult deal. He's using taking advantage of those tax laws in Italy um, to get a salary which ranges between 7.5 million euros and 9 million euros after tax um, when performance-related bonuses are included. Um, you would be looking at a substantial transfer fee because Inter paid a substantial transfer fee to take him from Manchester United. He's 27 already. Um, I think that's a tough deal to get through unless it comes to the point of a fire sale at Inter and Lukaku then says, well, actually, I need to move club for um, sporting reasons mm. because I, although I've won the title, I'm not going to have a chance of winning the Champions League here. And of course, uh, Sergio Aguero's ultimate goal and ambition before he retires, um, probably uh, back to South America, is to win the Champions League because he's not achieved that as yet. So uh, I suspect the reason he wants to stay at a top club in Europe is to give himself that opportunity um, before he does uh Change continents. I think that's part. I think that's part of it, Ian. But I think he also feels he he's capable of competing at the top level of European football, and he's not. He does have a lot of offers. He has offers from South America. He's have offers from the United States and other parts of the globe. But he's not interested. I'm told in leaving the top tier of European football at this stage of his career. And you know that Champions League thing might resolve itself. Uh, they he might end up with a Champions League title this season. Um, certainly Manchester City were done a huge favour by um, a UEFA official, ironically, in the first leg against Dortmund um, when they they could have conceded a, an important away goal and, they, and they, they could have come out of that tie in, in worse state than they ended up um, coming out of it. So from the uh, panache of uh, the elite clubs, um, in Europe and England to the slightly less elite uh, club of Crystal Palace. Uh, intriguing situation uh, is playing out, Duncan, at Selhurst Park, where uh, Roy Hodgson's contract, which expires at the end of this season, is looking increasingly unlikely to be renewed. Uh, it's our information that, in fact, the club have sounded out at least two, if not three, other coaches with a view to them taking over from Hodgson in the summer when his deal does run out. Uh, you've got some information regarding a fairly well-known name, someone who uh, I think most people recognise. Yeah, it's my understanding that um, they've been in contact with Frank Lampard. Um which I think is not a great surprise given that he is available um, after being dismissed by Chelsea. Uh, obviously, a Londoner, um, a base in London, um, you can see the kind of appeal of bringing Lampard to Crystal Palace, what, what that would have for the ownership there. Um, I think that the interesting part is whether they can convince Lampard. He's, he's recently talked about how the spell in which he... Um, was out, has been out of the game and uh, the nature of lockdown um, has given him time to spend with his family and uh, and to live his life in a way that he's never really had the opportunity 
to live before and, and he, he's quite enjoyed that and he's made, made him think a bit differently um, about uh, the game um, and about his lifestyle. Not that he doesn't want to go back into football, but um, I think might be more cons considered in his choice and not in such a hurry to get back into the game. This story with Palace is fascinating because we had the same scenario at the end of last season, something we reported on the podcast that Steve Parrish was considering replacing Hodgson, um, that they had, hadn't had talks about renewing the contract. In the end, they signed a new deal. We explained at the time what the thinking was and, and how Parrish wanted a change of the style of football and he wanted a, a younger squad. Um, and he had a strategy for taking advantage of Crystal Palace's location in London, working in a different way in the transfer market. And he felt that although Hodgson had done a fantastic job in sustaining Palace in the Premier League, that the way he managed the team didn't fit with that. And look, there has been a slight change this season in terms of the, the, the players being used by Palace. But once again, you go through the squad and the, and the, the minutes played and the, and the preferred individuals, there's just one of their 10 most used players in the Premier League by minutes, um, Eberechi Ezi, who's under the age of 29. So you still have that pattern of reliable old professionals playing a very well-organised um, and effective system for keeping them in the league, but not, not the kind of football that Parrish has been looking for. So... Um, I think, yeah, so Hodgson is aware of this. He was aware of it last summer and instructed his agent to look for other clubs elsewhere and the expectation that he might have to uh, have to change and, and find a, a new football club to work at. And again, you've got Parrish kind of seemingly scratching at that old itch and, and wanting to take change strategy and, and, and looking at a, a high-status young manager who um, has a reputation for playing attacking football as a as an alternative option to Hodgson? Well, it's true. Hodgson has had a, a very uh, myriad career, I suppose you could call it, Duncan. Um, I think he's basically worked in more clubs than the Beatles um, throughout his so what four maybe five decades in the game, and um, so yeah. Moving somewhere else, even at his age, I think he's definitely 72, I believe, um, would not be uh, in any way um, something which he would feel apprehensive about. Uh, the other uh, aspect uh, of this is that uh, it's also the case that we understand Sean Dyche of Burnley has also uh, on, is on, on the list of uh, preferred candidates for Crystal Palace, having done a sterling job uh, at his current club for many years. And he's someone who they would look to, um, depending on what happens with uh, Hodgson and the other candidates that they have. And indeed, Dyche came very close to leaving Burnley last summer um, because of the recruitment policy and lack of investment in the squad um, by uh, the club and therefore you would imagine that you'd be open to a new opportunity so uh, that's one certainly that we will keep you up to date on as we hear more information and uh, you will know that you will hear it here first 
as well as Hodgson, another veteran, if you like, of the Premier League, though certainly nowhere near as quite as old in years, is Jose Mourinho, uh, who has been experiencing a very rough ride at Tottenham Hotspur in recent weeks. Uh, it's one Duncan which uh, has been much speculated about. Jose is someone you know well. Um, what's your take in terms of where things stand between him and Spurs at this moment in time? Yeah, not not quite the seventy four years of of Hodgson, but oh, uh, seventy four, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the this the the pressure around him and the uh, the the deluge of criticism. I mean, you're actually seeing Tottenham supporters going on social media at present saying they hope Tottenham lose their League Cup final so that Josie isn't able to say that uh, he was the one who won a trophy and ended the the 13 year drought. I mean, quite a remarkable um, degree of antipathy towards him from amongst some of the Tottenham supporters. I think it it has these these last two results have made it um, even more difficult for him. A couple of months ago, we reported that Julian Nagelsmann had made himself available to Tottenham, made it clear that he was interested in coaching the Premier League next season and taking that job if it became available. Um, Mourinho, for some time now, has been conscious that it could it can come to an end at the end of the season. Um, nothing that's happened in the last week um, where they've been in position, I think quite good position, to take six points against Newcastle United and then Manchester United and ended up with just one point, which has left them six off the Champions League qualifying slot, which Daniel Levy wants um, with seven games remaining, um, has improved that situation. I think they're it's getting to the point now where Mourinho is is kind of working game to game um, and focusing all his efforts on getting results, um, finishing the season as well as he can, um, try and get that Champions League place if he can get the, the performances out of the team to, uh, to overtake um, at present, Liverpool, Chelsea, West Ham, although Leicester City are also coming into that equation with their with their recent run of poor form, and and definitely try and win the League Cup, um, and then see what happens with Levy. It, it is now, I think, very easy for Daniel Levy to dismiss Mourinho if he decides to go down that route. Um, there is, you know, huge criticism of just about everything he does. And uh, and a and a disgruntled uh, supporter base who um, who want to see a change in manager and also I think want to see a, a change in in players, which is something Mourinho wants, but is aware that um, is going to be difficult to do in the in the transfer window coming because Tottenham are not at present prepared to put a big budget into reinforcements. Although they accept his argument that uh, the defence at the very least needs to be upgraded in the summer um, if they are to do what Mourinho was brought into the club to do which is compete at the top end of the table I mean I think all of these analysis of what Tottenham are doing and um, what Mourinho has done at the club have to take into account what Covid how that's changed the parameters in which Levy and Mourinho expected to work when he took that job the discussion between him and uh, the chairman of Tottenham was, we've moved into a new stadium. 
The financing is sorted out. Um, the wage bill here is relatively low uh, compared to expected revenue. We're going to invest in new players to upgrade the squad. And what we want to do is compete for the Premier League title. And we think you are the manager to do that. That got taken away pretty quickly. And um, and since then, there's been this sort of a fight that Mourinho's quite accustomed to or a, a situation which he's quite accustomed to, which is arguing with the hierarchy of the club over the right kind of players to bring in and, and the areas to focus uh, on recruitment to to make improvements. And, you know, in the summer, as we reported at the time, Daniel Levy decided to bring Gareth Bale back to the club. Um, as we reported at the time, we didn't think that was a great idea given the strength they had in that area of the field and his past few seasons as a footballer and the wages that would be involved. More success for Levy from the other signing he made, Sergio Regulon. I think that's one Mourinho has, has been happy with, but wanted a centre-back, a top-level centre-back, ended up getting a young centre-back with the potential to develop. But you know, if, you, if you're telling your owners that you need a leader, elite centre-back to upgrade the defence and they sign someone from Swansea City, you, it's not hard to see you haven't got what um, you recommended in the market. And um, you know, the course of performances for Tottenham over the season have shown that uh, the squad isn't there. Uh, some, some interesting statistics as well. There's a lot of the criticism about Tottenham is they don't play attacking football under Mourinho. If you go to the to Tottenham's uh, to the Premier League's big chances metric, which is a you know a statistical measure of opportunities where strikers should score. Tottenham were before the weekend third in that. Um, Manchester United have just gone ahead of them. So the idea that he is coaching them to a purely defensive style and that's cost them their position in the league, I don't think is um, supported by uh, the actual performances on the pitch and I, and I think any sort of reasonable football analyst will say that his complaints about the defence and the idea that they're making individual errors rather than organisational errors that are costing the team is also supported by watching the football but these arguments in many ways don't matter I think I, I think it's more about a, 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 the wave and the momentum of events and a scenario in which it's becoming increasingly easy for Daniel Levy to say, I am going to change coach because the squad needs someone else in charge of them. I suppose if he does get sacked, he can always get a job as a Valley Parker in a bus station. <laughs> um, but seriously, um, one of the arguments... Uh, that's, that's usually put forward about Jose Mourinho in any job since he took over at Chelsea in 2004 is uh, it's so expensive to sack him because his salary is very high and therefore the severance is very high. Um, is it realistic that Spurs can afford to sack Mourinho? I think it is. It's, um, you know, we, we reported previously in the podcast that there is a defined um break clause in the contract uh, there's been a lot of reporting saying that uh, it would cost the full residual value of of his contract at Tottenham which is you know runs to tens of millions of, of pounds to dismiss him and that was one of the reasons why it hadn't been done yet my information is that 
there is a defined release clause. It will not be cheap, but it won't be the full value of the contract. And that contract, remember, a big chunk of the money is performance related. Um, so a lot of his salary is dependent on winning trophies, qualifying the club for the Champions League. If he did win the Carabao Cup, especially as it's against Manchester City, the final, would he be unsackable? I don't. I, I was discussing this t- today. Um, we were trying to work out what Levy's approach was um, and whether, I mean, uh, hypothetically, if Tottenham lose to Everton in the next match, is it strategic for Levy if he's decided, and, and I'm saying if here, I'm not saying he has, I'm saying if, if he's decided that a change of manager, change of coach is the thing to do, is it, would it be strategic for him to dismiss Mourinho before the League Cup final to prevent him from having the opportunity of winning that trophy and making it harder for him to dismiss? Um, and, you know, I think, I think you can run that both ways. And you can also say that, yes, if Levy was to go down that route, and they were to lose the final under whoever he put in place for that game, he would receive a lot of criticism for allowing a guy who's got a proven record of of winning finals and is certainly strategically capable of coming up with a plan to beat Manchester City. He's already proven that this season. To get rid of him before you have the opportunity to end the 13-year uh, drought um, of silverware for Tottenham. But actually, I don't think Mourinho can be unsackable in this climate regardless of what he does and regardless of which way he ends the season because there is an appetite um, amongst a lot of the media and amongst um, a chunk of the Tottenham supporters, a large chunk of the Tottenham supporters for a change. So even if he wins the League Cup final, um, I think Levy can get rid of him if he decides that's the way to go. The question is whether it's the right approach for Tottenham as opposed to the easy approach for Tottenham. I think that's the, the, the question Levy has to be asking himself and can, is he guaranteed to get a coach or manager in who will do a better job with Tottenham in the situation they're in at the moment? There's definitely players there who want a change um, and are, are briefing that uh, there are problems with the coach and they're not performing as well because of the way he handles them. So, so you can you can bring those players back on board by changing manager. Whether that gives you overall better results and and what message it sends to the players going forward, and you, I think he has to ask also that the players that Mourinho is identifying as not being the right ones to have at the club. And this is a manager who came in and was very happy with the squad when he came in on record of talking about how pleased he was about the players. I think he's been surprised. But again, we made this point in the podcast before. If you go back to what Maurizio Pochettino was talking about before he got dismissed, in fact, just weeks before he played in the Champions League final with this squad of players, he was talking about the need to renew and the need to make radical changes in the squad and the need to upgrade. So you've got two top managers in the game who've worked with these players and both of them have come to the conclusion that a number of them have reached the end of the road as far as Tottenham's goals are concerned and need to be changed. So 
I, you know, the, you can run it various ways, and and I think that's the the problem that's presented to to Levy at present. And yes, he has someone like Julian Nagelsmann uh, offering himself for the job. Uh, you do have an opening potentially coming up in Bayern Munich, which might change that avail- availability of Nagelsmann. But there's no guarantees with Nagelsmann. It, you, it will be a popular appointment. It will look like a progressive move because Nagelsmann's stock in the game is high. But you don't know that when he comes to the Premier League that he will succeed there. Well, I'm fairly certain it won't be Frank Lampard as the next manager of uh, Spurs, uh, that's for sure. Uh, unlike Jose, who managed to make that trip across the divide from well, Chelsea. Daniel Levy, li- Daniel Levy likes appointing sacked uh, Chelsea managers, so you never know. That's uh, very true, he does, he does. Well, I believe Glenn Hoddle's available. <laughs> so, uh, with Jose in trouble, uh, partly uh, down to, as Duncan mentioned, uh, it would have been easier for him if the last two results had gone in his favour, having his team being in the lead at one point in the game. Uh, that was not the case last weekend. Uh, having beaten Manchester United 6-1 in the first fixture in the Premier League this season, Spurs suffered the reverse. Uh, and although being a goal up through uh, Sunhoi Min, they then conceded two goals in the second half. Uh, This led um, to, well, not the actual result itself, but uh, the incident between Scott McTominay and uh, Hoimingson where a goal was chopped off by VAR because it was a judge that McTominay had struck Son in the face, which, if you watch the footage, is clearly the case. And... Therefore, that is, in the laws of the game, a foul. Um, but Duncan, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer made a very bizarre and and very sort of, um, I don't know, inappropriate comment in regard to that incident. He talked about if one of his sons had done made the same gesture that Son had in going down and being down for three minutes and then needing 10 teammates to get him up both of which were untrue, he would not feed his kid for days. Um, is the pressure telling on Solskjaer? When he, uh, that, I mean, that is a very strange thing to say. Look, first of all, we should say um, excellent performance from Manchester United in the second half of the game. This is a team that has produced a lot of comebacks this season. But I think the quality of their attacking in that second half was as good as I've seen them play. Um, in this Premier League campaign and you know in particular we, we talked about Tottenham conceding stupid goals but in particular the, the, the second goal that uh, Manchester United scored was such a good piece of uh, attacking play and team coordination and I don't think there was a great deal Tottenham could have done to, to stop it from happening real high quality goal and then as we've seen Manchester United doing quite a lot, once they get that um, lead on opponents who are forced to push forward uh, to try and level the game, they score another one um, at the end, which is something they're very good at on on the counter attack. Um, so a, a top performance from the team. He he got he did get um, a bit of luck in his favour in that uh, Tottenham had opportunities to score in that second half. Um, 
famously one coming off off the inside of the, the post. And, and as Mourinho pointed out in his post-match press conference, um, Paul Pogba could have been sent off before any of this happened and that uh, Paul Pogba's elbow on um, Serge Aurier was uh, certainly far worse than what Scott McTominay did to Son Heung-Ming. And, um, you know, you even have former Manchester United player Paul Ince looking at that post-match and saying, if that's not a red card, I don't know what is. Um, which I, I think he has a, a solid argument about in that case because it was a, a hefty um, elbow to Aurier's face. And, and as Ince pointed out, um, Pogba reached out to do it. It wasn't a natural movement. But anyway, um, the, the thing that I found bizarre about Solskjaer's complaint post-match was one, the, the, the comment about not feeding his son, which as you say is a pretty odd thing for anyone to say. But two, that he felt the need to be uh, so emotional and, and um, so worked up about a... VAR decision in the game that his team had, had won. Um, generally, you find that football managers in, in matches where that they've won, where a decision's gone against them, they'll play it. They might talk about it if asked about it, but they will downplay that matter because there isn't really a great deal of advantage in, to them in making an issue of, of something that ultimately did not cost them any points. Solskjaer decided to overplay the matter and, and do it in a you know in a way which <laughs> well I'll leave you to do the, do the joke about my Marcus Rashford uh, later on uh, about his comments but also left himself I think a hostage to fortune because a lot of supporters said they, they agreed with what he was saying about his son and they agreed that uh, the VAR shouldn't have intervened in, in those circumstances but it's extremely hypocritical of him to make that point, given that his players have won a lot of penalties um, and had a lot of VAR interventions in their favour in very similar circumstances. And you know, Bruno Fernandes being picked up by supporters as an example of someone who goes down very easily, who goes down screaming, who rolls around in the ground and and needs um, teammates to come and help him up, and you know. Uh, we don't hear anything about Hooligan or Solskjaer denying Bruno Fernandes food for, for doing it. And, you know, in fact, you have the game before um, Fernandes winning a penalty against Granada in the final minutes that pretty much put Manchester United in the semi-finals of the Europa League after a game in which they'd struggled versus Granada and, and after they picked up quite a lot of defensive suspensions that would have made it more complicated for them if they were playing with just a goal advantage going into the second match. Fernandez won a penalty where he pushed the defender. The defender responded by putting his hand in, in Fernandez's face. The referee astutely picked it up. Fernandez went down um, doing something very similar to what Sun did. And, uh, and Manchester United benefit. We, we didn't hear Solskjaer complaining about Fernandez's behaviour then, or in other occasions during the season, you know, you have the famous one where he 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 spins in the air and lands on the leg of an opponent and goes down claiming a penalty and gets it. So I don't think he does himself any favours by by being so enervated 
about an incident in a game where his team had come back well and uh, and, and essentially secured second place for him. Yeah, as you said, Duncan, um, very insensitive comment from Solskjaer given Marcus Rashford's sterling work in the communities of the United Kingdom to feed underprivileged children. I was just thinking, though, um, maybe we mustn't misunderstood Solskjaer. Maybe he was transposing himself into the future where Son Hoi-Min was actually his player. And he said he wouldn't, he was, what he was actually saying was he wouldn't feed Son for several days. If, because if he did that, playing for him. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Uh, perhaps we'll find out when he does his press conference for this week's Europa League second leg. It is the first Transfer Window podcast of the week, which of course means it's our heroes and villain of the last few days in football. I'm going to turn over to Duncan, who this week has decided to go for villain, uh, which has been my job recently. Uh, So Duncan, please tell us who your villain is uh, over the last few days in football. Um, Another referee-related event and uh, and the villain I think has to be the referee in the Manchester City Borussia Dortmund game of Ido Hattigan who um who managed to to give a foul um against Jude Bellingham when he'd uh, taken the ball cleanly uh, against Everton and actually been kicked by Ederson not only managed to give a foul um that uh, hadn't occurred um for a what was an excellent bit of play by the young um England um, youth international, but also blew his whistle so quickly that VAR were not able to uh, reassess whether the the f- decision on the foul had been correct and weren't able to reverse the decision. Which, again, um, you know, we don't want VAR to be there. We've been very clear about it on the podcast, but it, you also it's just a one another example of how the protocol and the criteria in which VAR work is problematic because in that particular incident, it didn't matter whether the referee had blown his whistle or not. Nobody could get to Bellingham. He was going to score the goal. They should, I think, have ignored um, that the whistle had been blown um, and said, well, go and have a look at it yourself on the screen. Allow him to see that he'd made a mistake. Allow him to reverse it and give what is a fundamentally important goal in a in a Champions League tie. Um, and uh, look, if Hatigan's the villain, I think Pep Guardiola gets to be the joint villain with him because asked um, about the linesman in that game asking Erling Haaland for his signature post match, which um, we're told subsequently was for a, um, to raise money for charity. Um, Guardiola said. The referee and the linesman were correct uh, during the match. They did a good job, that's all. So um, then goes and praise, praises the referee for, for being correct and doing a good job when the referee made a, a huge error that had helped his team and which by that stage Guardiola must have been aware of. Indeed, and that bizarre incident with the uh, assistant referee and Erling Haaland being investigated now by UEFA as well. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, and we know that just about all of you are, which is very, very good. We love that about you. Uh, you'll be surprised by my hero um, for this week because I am going to commend the one and only supersize Sam Allardyce, who's managed to win two back, back-to-back games in the Premier League uh, and 
effectively give West Brom something of a chance of staying up. Allardyce himself said that they need everything's not in their hands. They need other teams to lose, etc. But nonetheless, uh, obviously beating Chelsea five two. Um, and then uh, Southampton, quite a, a feat for a team that has uh, performed and underperformed for the majority of the season. So it were not Big Sam's been taking his players for a ride in the Granada, uh, firing it up and uh, showing them what it's like to get a, a bit of torque uh, and then that, that transferring to the players in terms of them running. Uh, well, we'd like to ask him, so no doubt we'll try and invite him on the show and he can tell us. But uh, Big Sam is this week's Transfer Window podcast hero. Uh, all of you out there who are also Transfer Window heroes, if you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, that way we get to extend the community. You can engage with us on social media channels. We are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. And also, if you're listening on YouTube, just search uh, Transfer Window Podcast there. And again, uh, turn on your notifications and you'll be first to know when the podcast drops. This has been uh, the first pod of the week. We will be back later in the week uh, to bring you more exclusive news and analysis and information. And until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.